Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Hello and welcome to all of you listening, wherever you are, to our final episode for 2023. We're going to take a look back at the wonderful conversations we had for Season 5 of A Podcast of One's Own. This year, I was able to interview more of the guests in person, which was indicative of life returning a little more to what we might consider normal in 2023. In May, the World Health Organization officially ended its declaration of COVID-19 being a global health emergency, although the virus is still with us. I had it for a second time in late March, though fortunately not badly. I remain grateful to the scientists who delivered the vaccines to the world. But even though COVID has not entirely gone away, more people began returning to the office, big events were back and international travel took off, with holidaymakers flocking to popular destinations once again. I was lucky enough to travel on the GAN train to Alice Springs, walk the rim of Kings Canyon and then spend a few magical days at Uluru. It made me reflect again on what a privilege it is to share this country with Australia's First Nations people, who are the custodians of the oldest living culture on earth. I was terribly saddened to see the results of the voice referendum and believe one of our biggest collective tasks in 2024 is coming together around truth-telling, reconciliation and genuine equality. I did do a lot of travelling this year as a result of splitting my time between Australia and the UK. I've had a hugely busy year, continuing my work with Welcome and the Global Institute for Women's Leadership in London, as well as Beyond Blue and Jules Sister Institute at the Australian National University in Canberra. I also headed up a Royal Commission into Early Childhood Education and Care in South Australia, where I grew up. It was a big job, but incredibly rewarding. I've always been passionate about everyone's right to a quality education and the role it can play in overcoming inequality. Through the Commission, I learned a lot about the ways we can best support our youngest minds. A big shout out to the incredible team I worked with on that project. After all the travel, I'm really happy to be back home in Adelaide and I'm looking forward to spending some time with family and friends over the holiday season. I came back home after having attended the Climate Summit in Dubai. 
Research shows that the effect of climate change escalates social, political and economic tensions, which in turn exposes women and girls to increased risk of gender-based violence, human trafficking and child marriage. I discussed all this with podcast guest Rowanna McClelland. Rowanna is an author, an academic researcher, a political advisor and a former colleague of mine. This year, she released her first novel, The Comforting Weight of Water, is set in a near future where it never stops raining and a young adolescent runs wild. One of the characters, an older woman, tells stories about the world before environmental and social collapse led to the wet and what that experience was like for women. I asked Rowanna whether she made a deliberate choice to highlight the impact a changing climate could have on women and girls. Yeah, I did. I wanted people to be thinking about that. I wanted to draw that out because we... We know that that's already happening. Climate change is already disproportionately affecting women. And we know that those effects are going to increase as climate change increases. So I wanted to write a story where that has already happened. And in order for us to be able to reflect on that impact. But also, I wanted to draw that out because... There is still a very kind of gendered coverage of climate issues and a gendered element to climate decision making, which given the effects on women that we anticipate or and know to have already happened is so kind of unequal and unlevel and disproportionate because we should be having women and other diverse voices involved in these conversations and it's something that comes up in my research and it's something that I wanted to draw out in the book as well. So I think being aware of that now and talking about that now and understanding the impact that climate change is going to have on women and drawing women into the conversation and other other voices into the conversation about climate change is really important because we do know this. This is fact. That is a really crucial issue for people living on this planet to tackle now and into the future. But as my next guest told us, the issue of gender inequality actually stretches beyond our planet and into space. Dr Elise Stevens is the Deputy Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University in Canberra. Elise's research focuses on gender, sexuality and leadership in frontier international relations, like national security, intelligence and space policy. This year, the Institute held Australia's first ever Conference on Gender Equality in Space. It was a brilliant event, uncovering key insights into the state of the sector. Unfortunately, exclusion and discrimination are common and persistent inequality impacts everything, from the division of roles and leadership opportunities to recruitment practices, funding decisions and unequal pay. During our conversation, Elise explained why it's so important women are an equal part of space exploration. The ramifications for getting this wrong are quite major. So for me, we're not talking about the effect of gender inequality for the next five or 10 or even 100 years in space. If we don't have women at the frontier and at the at the forefront, if we don't have First Nations people, if we don't have people of different ethnicities and disabilities, sexualities and other backgrounds, then really we're limiting who gets to decide on whether we settle future planets, whether we mine them, 
who benefits from our space engagement. That's really held in the small hands of a small few, I suppose. And I think that that's really worrying. So I think this is an intergenerational issue. And if we can get it right now, then that also sets a precedent going forwards for any future planets that we may or may not settle. You think more people should be in on this decision than Elon Musk? 100%. I think that was one of the the first reasons why I started this research. I was like, oh my goodness, are we only going to see rich white men populate the moon or Mars? And if so, there's going to be some sustainability issues. We're going to come back down to Earth now and turn our focus to Afghanistan. It's more than two years since the Taliban reclaimed control of the country and dramatically changed the lives of women and girls. When the Taliban took power in 2021, all eyes were on Afghanistan. But now it's hard to get news of what is happening and to hear the perspective of the women living there. To amplify the voices, we held a live event at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership in London in May, where we heard from an excellent panel of speakers. One of our panellists was Sveto Mohammed Ishok. Sveto works to bring the diverse stories of women in Afghanistan to public attention and to dispel the stereotypes that persist. In general, Afghan women um, are portrayed as passive victims, very weak, people who need pity. I think that's completely not true uh, because in my opinion, Afghan women are the strongest women. They are very powerful. They're very strong. They're leaders in their communities. They're leaders in their families. They are capable and leaders. And I think that was very proved, uh, very much proved after the collapse of Afghanistan. We have seen women protesting on the streets, so they didn't stay silent. They were not passive victims. Uh, They have started, they have turned their homes into secret schools and um, they have started, the teachers have started volunteering and they are not receiving salaries, but they're teaching the next generation of girls in their homes. So women are doing a lot. And despite these problems, despite these circumstances and challenges that we are facing in Afghanistan. Uh, so I think it's, it's, very, it's very important to kind of have the approach, whether it's from humanitarian perspective or from journalism, from any side of perspective to view Afghan women as um, not passive victims of people who are actively trying to challenge their status quo and challenge the situation. So yeah, so when discussing Afghan women, it's really important to keep that in mind, that they are capable if they will be given opportunities. I think that's something that all of us in this room can do is to support. So the support that the international community can do is to amplify the local voices. So even now when I talk, I always share my story or I talk to a person who is in Afghanistan because I think we have to give platforms. And I honestly believe that Afghan women or in general women from the global south are not voiceless. Uh, And I I don't know, I have a problem with that uh, term as well. We have a voice, we just need to be given a platform. Mm -hmm. If you give a platform, and I'm really great that all the panelists here are giving platform through their own organization, through their own work. Uh, So it's really important to give them platform, to hear their stories, to hear their perspectives, because we have the solutions. A lot of right now, local NGOs and local, not only NGOs, like businesses, are trying to fill the gap of humanitarian crisis, education crisis, everything they're doing, they just need support. So always try to listen to the Afghan women who are in, who is in Afghanistan because she knows the solution and she will say that perfectly. Since this conversation, world events have continued to shock us. 
all of us feel the emotional impact of what has happened in Israel and Gaza. Many of us know people who have been directly affected for whom the grief and pain are intense. While this new horror has hit, the war in Ukraine continues and the toll of lives lost mounts. Indeed, a roll call of all the places in the world where war, violence, civil unrest and poverty blight lives would take longer than our time together on this podcast. All this should deepen our sense of gratitude for living in a beautiful, peaceful country and propel us to give when we can to the key humanitarian relief charities who strive to make a difference. It also means when we hear stories of courage and resilience, we truly appreciate them as the beacons they are in so much despair. Sveto told us some of those stories. She spoke about the strength and resilience of Afghan women and her views were echoed by best-selling author Gail Lamon. Gail is a former journalist who has written extensively about women's entrepreneurship in conflict and post-conflict zones like Afghanistan. She's also written books, including The Dressmaker of Kahar Khanna, which tells the story of a young woman in Kabul who has graduated with a teaching degree but is banned from working after the Taliban seizes power in 1996. In order to support her family, the woman creates a dressmaking business. I ask Gail about how the story layers the questions of what is victimhood, what is resistance, what is agency, and how those same questions apply to what is happening to women in Afghanistan today. The narrative of the victim trumps everything for those outside Afghanistan when it comes to women. And when you are inside the country, you have the privilege of meeting women who are shaping their communities every single day against enormous odds, no matter what the obstacle is. Dressmaker of Carcano is a story about a girl who had to figure out how to support her brothers and sisters at a very difficult time when her father was in danger for staying. And so she realized she was actually really lousy at sewing, but she was very good at bringing the people together who could sew and then going to the marketplace and selling those dresses. And that dressmaking business, which grew out of desperation, really led to the innovation of people from around the neighborhood coming to her saying, my aunt's cousin's sister's friend says you have work. Because what people don't know about the Taliban is exactly what's being experienced now, which is they do not have the technocratic capability to run an economy. And you add to that the international community and sanctions, right, and what's happening. And it makes it incredibly difficult for moms and dads to feed their children. And it was the same then. And so when I fast forward to now, it's even more so. There are women who are against great odds finding ways forward because they always will. And it is, in my view, one of the greatest people and sources of investment would be to support those women as they push forward in their communities. I couldn't agree with Gail more about the need to invest in women. A lot of issues we've explored so far focus on inequalities forced upon women by men or the patriarchy more generally. In the first episode of this season, I sat down with broadcaster and author Angela Saini to discuss her latest book, 
the patriarchs, the origins of inequality. We had a fascinating discussion about the roots of gendered oppression and how patriarchal systems become embedded in our societies. One of the really interesting elements Angela raised was the role women can play in reflecting and perpetuating these systems. Often when we talk about patriarchy and feminist circles, we're talking about Europe and the West. And I wanted to illustrate that it takes different forms depending on where you are in the world. And certainly in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, that mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamic is one of the main vectors for patriarchal structures. There's absolutely no doubt about it. You see it again and again. In fact, it's a it's such a common trope. It's repeated in soap operas and films. It's just dominant and it really does shape the lives and fortunes of women. Where it comes from is that in patrilocal cultures, so these are cultures in which women leave their own family home to go and live with their husbands. So you're essentially leaving the comfort and safety of your family, of your kin, people who've known you since childhood, and joining who in some cases can sometimes be strangers. It's not that long ago, my mum's generation, in which women would sometimes get married without ever having met their husband, sometimes moving very far away. And in fact, one of the examples I give in the book is of women who have moved country with their husbands and the domestic violence and abuse they sometimes suffer at the hands of their in-laws, which is a big issue in diaspora communities in Europe and throughout the West. And that situation, of course, as you can imagine, creates an imbalance of power. If you are on your own in a family in which everyone knows each other and is looking out for each other, but you're the new one and you already are expected because of cultural expectation to you know, be a bit deferential to your husband and to your parents-in-law, then it, of course it creates a kind of master-servant relationship in some cases. And in fact, the parallel I give is with slavery. It's not that it is literally slavery, but certainly you can see echoes of it in the way that marriage customs have developed and the institution of marriage has developed in the way that, you know, you are almost, you know, expected to be subservient, to give yourself over, to be completely submissive to this new family that you've joined. And in fact, now it's only relatively recently that forced marriage, which is the most extreme form of this patrilocal marriage, has now been classified officially by the International Labour Organization as a form of modern day slavery. So there are many millions of women and girls today living in conditions like this, patriarchal conditions, patrilocal conditions in which they are essentially slaves. You know, that is, I think, the foundational patriarchal institution, how that happens and how that developed. Now, going back to your question, when we perpetuate these things ourselves, when we become mother-in-laws and behave terribly to our daughter-in-laws and then they grow up and do the same and this cycle just continues, or when you see aunts and mothers pushing their daughters to have FGM, even though they know how painful it is because they feel it will serve them in society if they have this procedure done. They know it will be easier for them to get married. All of this we know is in the service of this culture that serves men, but we also have to live our lives and we have to make it work somehow. We have to draw power and agency where we can. And so we just keep replicating it. We just keep doing it because that's all we have. When you have no way out, then what else can you do? 
You have to just buy into the system and make it work for you as an individual in whichever way you can. So I'm not condemning the women, of course, who find themselves in this situation because often they will have no other choice. They will have nowhere else to go. The question is, how do we break that cycle? How do we interrupt it? And how do we detach it from our commitment to tradition and culture, which I think is such a dangerous game because it we can find ourselves then as women defending things that should be indefensible, as a human rights issue, indefensible, but we defend it because of culture. As Angela has so excellently put there, bringing about change or speaking up against entrenched traditions and norms can be really difficult. And often those who do speak out come under fire. In June, I had the pleasure of sitting down with another Angela, Angela Rayner. Angela is the deputy leader of the Labor Party in the UK and has a remarkable life story. Growing up on a council estate near Manchester, Angela didn't see a book until she started school. When she became pregnant with her first child at the age of 16, she left school and had to navigate her way as a young single mum. It was later as a care worker that she became involved in the union movement and her political journey began. We discussed the barriers and the online abuse that women face on the political front line and how that discourages many from taking part. I asked her how she found her voice and the ability to speak out. I would say it evolves. It's not going to happen overnight. And at different periods, I've challenged different things. So at times, the way my father behaved, I got to a teenager and and I challenged him on the way our structure of our house was. I've challenged people, I challenged teachers at school when I thought they were wrong in something they were doing. I've always tested the boundary. I am that kid that would like literally just step over the line. <laughs> we've, all, we've all got one in the family somewhere. It just pushes it. They're going to be the entrepreneurial kid, I'm telling you. But I've always been that one. My brother and sister were far more compliant than I was. So there's something inside me that kind of pushes the boundary. But then it's evolved over time. So I remember being a home help, asked to go into the boardroom as a union rep very early on to speak to management about a restructure. And the senior branch secretary asked me to go along. But I'm like, I can't go in that room. It's the director of social services, you know, hence social services. They're very important people, not like me. I'm like, I can't do that. I, I, I wouldn't know what to say. And you just sit, you can just sit there if you want, but we need you there because you're the shop steward and you, you're in that area sort of thing. So it's like, okay, so I go around, I go there, incredibly nervous, thinking I shouldn't be in this room. And within 15 minutes of listening to the directors, I was like, you, you don't have a Scooby-Doo <laughs> knowledge about anything that we're doing. And it kind of then, I kind of had to speak out again. I'm like, well, actually, that's not true. That's not how we do our job. That wouldn't work with our job. And I kind of ended up like in the boardroom, the director coming up with a new rehabilitation service that delivered for for social care and at the same time giving the workers that I worked alongside a career structure and a pay rise. So I I went from one minute feeling like I would have nothing to contribute to realising that actually I had the most to contribute in that room. I never thought I'd be deputy leader of the Labour Party. I never, ever thought that I would be picked, chosen by my peers to do that job. Uh, maybe that's a good thing that you, somebody's in that job that never wanted to sort of aspire to do it. It was people around me that said, you know, the question they asked me when they asked me to go for deputy leader was like, why aren't you going for leader? I never saw that in myself. 
other people have seen things. So it's a mixture of both. You need good allies. And I always say to people, you know, if you haven't, the, the one thing you should do is tell somebody, whether it's random or family member or whoever, if there's somebody that impresses you about something they do, just tell them. We don't tell people enough about that, especially women and girls. We generally tend to need to know. So just make sure you give them a tap on the shoulder, a postcard. I get lovely postcards from women all over the world that will just send me a little note saying, oh, I think you're great when you do this. And I'm like, Hew. it just gives you that. It gives you that little bit of, especially if you've had a bad day. So I think that's a really good thing. So I think it's not one thing. I think it's a number of things. It's external people saying you're good at this and helping you but it's also an internal evolution. So don't kick yourself if you don't think you've been the right feminist or you've done something that you think, ah, I've let myself down a little bit there. Don't kick yourself. Just think, what am I going to do differently next time? What can I do today? And you should always apply for the job. That's the other thing I'll say. (laughs) That's the other problem that, 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 that we tend to have. Yeah, we'll look at a job description and we'll see a couple of things that we don't think we've got. And then we'll say, well, that's not the job for me. Whereas generally guys in the boardroom will see a couple of things that they can do on the job description and many of them they can't and they'll think that is definitely my job I can I can wing the rest so that's the only thing I'd say in the capital feminism is that women tend to be really hard on ourselves and actually you should think I'm going to go for it and try and push yourself to go for those things. There might be a few examples in British politics of men who have overestimated their ability to do a job. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fantastic advice from Angela there for all of us to back ourselves. Allowing ourselves as women to take up space and try new things was something I also discussed with Turia Pitt. It's putting it mildly to say that Turia's life took a very unexpected turn when she was in her early 20s. Working as a mining engineer in Western Australia, Turia was caught in a bushfire while competing in an ultramarathon and suffered devastating burns. Doctors doubted she would survive, but she's done more than that, much more. She is a best-selling author, a motivational speaker and a proud mum of two boys. She spoke to me about the pressure women are under to excel at anything they attempt. I don't think boys or men need permission to be good at something, to be able to have a go, right? But if you're a woman and you want to partake in a sport or you want to do something, you had better do it bloody well. Otherwise, you don't have a space. There's no place for you. And that's really hard when you're new to something or when you're a beginner or when you're learning something new. And you can probably relate to that, Julia, with your education and your experience if you're going to do something you have to be exceptional particularly if you're doing something that's traditionally seen as a a man's job. I think that's right and I think it's also about if a woman does something that's traditionally a male thing 
and she fails at it, that's seen to say something about the capacity of all women, whereas if a man fails in a traditional male occupation, well, that's just on him, you know, it's saying something about him but not the capacity of men overall. And I think that extra pressure means that it's hard to find the space to fail and learn and do better and we all need that to get better at what we want to do and what we're aspiring to do. Even if you don't perform in an outstanding manner, it's still seen to be a failure, which is really hard to wrap your head around. I'm a mining engineer by trade. I did mining engineering at uni. I think there was you know five girls out of our graduating class of 40 guys. Actually, all of the girls did really, really well in their university studies. And I think that was because we felt that you couldn't be mediocre because you wouldn't get a chance. You had you had to be exceptional. You had to do really well because that was how you proved that you were worthy of taking up space in that domain. As all of these interviews have demonstrated, we have a long, long way to go to achieve gender equality. It's something we've been fighting for for so long. And sometimes I feel that it becomes difficult to keep the attention on gender equality when there's so much going on in the world, so much going wrong. As part of this year's International Women's Day, I spoke with Dame Sharon White, the first woman to become chair of John Lewis and Partners, the largest employee-owned business in the UK. I asked her how we continue to advocate for diversity and inclusion when there's a sense of impending crisis in so many areas. I mean, I sometimes think if maybe the language doesn't help us and maybe talking and stories do. So when I was when I was involved in development, which now feels it's before my first, it was about 19 years ago. So I'm, I'm kind of out of date from a sort of day-to-day sort of work perspective. But actually so many of the issues were about girls. This was the time when the World Bank was very, and the development community was very rightly focused on female empowerment was the language then, because... As today, girls going to school and particularly being able to make it into secondary school was such a massive unlock for sort of everything, for jobs, for having your kids later, for better maternal health, better infant health. And even when you, know, you think about all the sort of geo-crises or climate change, actually, if you've got more women voices at the table. So I, mem- I remember spending a lot of time in Uganda and visiting visiting schools and talking about, you know, well, what happens when your first, the 13-year-old girl has her period and suddenly she's at home for a week and missing, missing a, you know, um, a quarter of her school life and, you know, obsessive, really important discussions about female-male lose and you've got female lose as a teenage girl, so that you've got privacy so that you can you know, you can be clean and how do you avoid sexual harassment and all those issues. So girls staying in school mm. is such a, such a massive unlock. And then obviously we've got the extreme now of what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would talk about girls into school. So when, when you, when we talk, when my 16-year-old, 16-year-old, lump, in many ways, lovely boy, although I've got GCSEs this year, which <laughs> is a total nightmare, when he talks about Feminism, I'm not a feminist, I'm proud not to be a feminist because that's anti-men. Well, I talked I talk to him about, do you know what's happening in Afghanistan? Do you know that if you're a girl, you're 
if you're born with ovaries, you can't go to school. Three weeks ago, you couldn't go to university. Now you're not in secondary school. Now you're not in primary school. That's happening today. And so that's why I think maybe diversity, maybe gender, maybe these words have become so sort of hackneyed and feeling as though there's a sort of industry associated with it that we've lost sight of what the root of this is. You know, my mother, who left school when she was 11 because she was the eldest of nine, followed by five boys and then three girls and every nightmare. Can I just think? <laughs> every time her mother had a baby, she had to leave school. So she did, my mother maybe did two or three, three or four years of schooling in Jamaica, could kind of write, couldn't read. So, and that's, that's what sexism and a patriarchal society does. It means that you don't go to school and you're in a manual job all your life. I want to come now to some of the regular questions that I ask each guest on the podcast. I always put a fact to my guests, something that relates to their work or their life. One of the last episodes of this season was with Ellie de Marchelier. Ellie is a proud disability advocate and became the face of a public campaign to maintain the integrity of the National Disability Insurance Scheme during the last Australian election. The fact I put to Ellie related to the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability. It was established in April 2019 and has just handed down its final report in September this year. I asked Ellie what her reaction was to the statistics that 25% of women with disability have experienced sexual violence after the age of 15 and a staggering 40% have experienced physical violence after the age of 15. I am not at all surprised. We have known these statistics for decades. They have remained unchanged for decades. I'm deeply concerned that if we don't pay attention to this final report and we don't take it incredibly seriously as a nation, it's not a moment of national reckoning, then we are going to condemn another generation of people with disability to the kind of statistics that you just read out. That would be such a missed moment to not just break free thousands of people who are currently in situations which are horrendous, but it would be a missed moment to create a country that is more inclusive and accessible and actually cares about its people, everyone, that actually sees everyone as a human being. And I I believe Australians actually think that way, but it's not happening. And if we don't take this Royal Commission seriously, then we are going to miss the moment. And so I just would really urge whoever's listening, make sure that the government is responding. Make sure that you're listening to disability advocates about what they want done. Make sure that you are engaging in conversations and reading articles. Just listening to people with disability about what they want to see happening next and trying to support those actions because we fought for decades for this Royal Commission and it feels like it's slipping through our fingers very quickly and we need the help of all Australians to capture this moment. 
an inspiring and really important rallying cry there from Ellie. I would really encourage you to take the time to look at the findings of the Royal Commission and how they're being responded to. At the end of each interview, I also put a Virginia Woolf quote to my guests in honour, of course, of the woman who inspired the name of this podcast. Virginia Woolf famously said that in order to write, a woman needs money and a room of her own. It should come as no surprise that an incredibly eloquent answer came from Sarah Holland Batt. Sarah is a poet and won this year's Stella Prize, an annual award for Australian women writers. Her winning work, The Jaguar, is a stunning book of poems, mostly focusing on her father's long journey with Parkinson's disease and the impact it had on him and on Sarah. Sarah is a passionate, intelligent and articulate woman. She says poetry suffers from a PR problem, but I think she might be changing that single-handedly. Virginia Woolf says, What is praise and fame to do with poetry? Was not writing poetry a secret transaction, a voice answering a voice, so that all this chatter and praise and blame and meeting people who admired one and meeting people who did not admire one was as ill-suited as could be to the thing itself, a voice answering a voice. Sarah says, I think that is so profound and I think it speaks to so much of what I value in poetry which is that poetry is a long conversation you can write a poem now in conversation with the ancient Greeks it is a continuity of language across culture across time and I think the thing that that I feel so glad about is that poetry sits almost entirely outside of conversations about economic rationalism, about utility, about use. You know, it is it is meaningful and powerful and important in our culture and in our lives precisely because of that, because it is just the human voice in its purest form, paying the closest attention to where we all live, which is language. You know, we live in language that that is the medium we use all day, every day. And poetry is a sort of distillation of that, but it also speaks across time. So I mean, beautiful words from Virginia Woolf and what an incredible woman she was. Beautiful words from Sarah too. In the last episode of the season, I broke the news that I'm moving on from chairing Beyond Blue, where I've been on the board since 2014. Beyond Blue is an incredible organisation which is trusted by Australians to provide advice, help and support. It is also an incredible service innovator, which means it is driving improvement in our mental health system. I will miss my board colleagues, Georgie Harmon, the amazing CEO of Beyond Blue, and the wonderful team she leads. But it's time for change, and in my final podcast this year, I introduced you to my successor, Sam Moston. Sam is a respected business leader who uses her expertise and platforms to drive climate action and change on gender equality. She was an inaugural commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission and is known to many because she was the first woman to serve on the Australian Football League Commission. In that capacity, she led the efforts to develop the women's game. Of course, she was often told no one wanted to watch women's play sport. Well, at the end of 2023, after millions and millions of Aussies watched the Matildas, don't we know that's rubbish? 
Here's Sam describing her sense of connection to mental health issues and why she is so enthusiastic about sharing Beyond Blue. I remember when I was on the commission and then subsequently realising that in Australia, everyone is only one or two members of a family away from either a very, very significant mental ill health matter or a suicide. That's the case in my family and for the protection of people in my family, I won't go deeply into it, but our family has experienced suicide. We've experienced um, across generations of our family significant mental health issues. I think we're just a normal family. There was nothing unique about us, but what typified us was, like many families, is no one talked about it. It was either that shame or that sense of it's only happening to us. We've realised as a country that once you sit down around a table and just if, with any group of, of friends or strangers and said, do you have an experience of significant mental illness in your family? The answer is always yes. And increasingly, it's taking on a form of younger people with, um, with anxiety or depression. But many people would say that they can point to a very significant mental health issue in their family that they haven't talked about before or have felt was just happening to them. When I first started thinking about that, it made me realise just the extent of, the, of this as a conversation for every part of our community. It's not defined by economic circumstances or educational attainment. It's something that happens in almost every family or in friendship groups. But I think we still have to get much, much better at that capacity to talk. We've had so many incredible guests on the podcast this season, but I think the biggest audience response we had was to the one and only Annie Lennox. Annie is, of course, a powerhouse singer and a music legend. She sold more than 80 million records as a solo artist and as part of Eurythmics. She's also a passionate feminist and activist. In 2008, she established the global women's rights organisation, The Circle. She spoke to me about how exhausting activism can be and where she draws inspiration from. You know, when you become an advocate or an activist, it can be extremely draining because, you know, you often feel that you're against a huge brick wall. And I've met many people who have experienced that feeling of being burnt out because it's it's hard, you know, you're often sort of shouting into the void, as it were. You feel as if there's nothing happening. And yet, you know, change is something we can always rely on, that over the course of time, change will happen. We never know if it will be for the better or the worse, but we that is the hope, that's the great message from Mandela, hope over despair. And I think it's some, very often I've gone back to that message that he engendered in his life. And for those moments when you feel with your activism that you might be screaming out into the void, is there a song you turn to that makes you feel empowered, <laughs> brave? Sometimes in our lives we all have pain, we all have sorrow, but if we are wise, then we can see a bright tomorrow. Lean on me. Oh, beautiful. Bill Withers, beautiful. Withers. You know, songs are so powerful. And I sing, I sing it to you just like this, just spontaneously, because that's, that's the gift I was given, just to sing, just to express beyond spoken word, beyond conversation. When we touch on the singing voice that everyone has, we touch on our soul, we go deeper. So I know how powerful music is. 
And that song is one of so many. Wow. It doesn't get any better than having Annie Lennox spontaneously burst into song. What an incredible voice and an incredible woman. That seems like the perfect way to end this episode and this season. Thank you so much for listening. I've loved all the conversations I've had this year and I truly hope you've enjoyed them too. A podcast of one's own will be back in 2024, but with some very exciting changes, which I can't wait to share with you in the new year. I wish you all a safe and happy festive season. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time.